everybody. Welcome in to the I Want to Know podcast. I'm your host, Greg Jones, and I'm the one leading you on this inquisitive departure into audio wisdom. Thank you guys for joining me today. I have a really fun show for you guys. My guest is Dr. Duena C. Welch. She is a self-proclaimed love science nerd and also has a psychology degree to back all that up. As I've been telling my friends, uh, she's the love doctor, if you will. Dr. Welch, is, she's really the only person putting the scientific method to the whole you know, philosophy or basis of love and relationship advice, which is really the reason I had her on the show. I've had a few emails from people who are quote-unquote relationship experts, but I feel like you can get that on any TV show or podcast you want to listen to. Dwayne, on the other hand, leaves opinions out of this, and it's all research, it's all fact. And I love science. I love researching. That's why I started this show. It's all about getting lost, Googling things, and researching topics. And she is exactly what I wanted for the show. Now, it's coming right before Valentine's Day. It might be coincidence. It might not. I'll let you figure that one out. But either way, this is going to be a great show. If you want to find out more about Duena, you can get her at lovesciencemedia.com. You can also check out her book. Love Factually, 10 Proven Steps from I Wish to I Do. It's on Amazon. You know what to do when you're buying on Amazon. Click on that banner. She also has regular writing appearances at Psychology Today, eHarmony, and Love Science. Her relationship advice blog is read in over 30 countries. That's pretty impressive. So real quick, before we start the interview, I've got to let you guys know I have a very cool announcement at the end of the show, so stay tuned for that. But I think it's time, without any further ado, joining me on Skype, Dr. Duena C. Welch. I think I got that right. You did. Awesome. She, <laughs> she has received a psychology doctorate, created Love Science in 2009, is a contributor at Psychology Today and regularly at eHarmony, taught psychology in Austin, Texas uh, at universities there, is the author of Love Factually, 10 Proven Steps from I Wish to I Do. Duane, thank you for joining. Thank you for such a warm and wonderful introduction, Greg. <laughs> well, thank you. You know, I we were talking a little bit off air, but... The reason I, I had to have you on the show, first of all, I think this is going to be a great Valentine's podcast, but also I get so many emails from uh, love relationship experts, quote unquote, uh, life coaches, all these people, but you were the only one that says, hey, I use science and facts to back up my stuff and I just don't have another opinion for you. And I just, I love that. I think that's great. Thank you very much. Yeah, I was... Uh... I actually got my doctorate in memory and aging, which doesn't sound like it's related to this, does it? <laughs> so, <laughs> so what happened is I went through a really bad breakup while I was getting my doctorate. And um, I realized that even though I was doing well in my career, I was doing terribly in something that really mattered to me, which was my love life. And I wanted that to go better. But everywhere I was faced with opinion and not fact. And I thought, you know, there are scientists who study almost everything under the sun. There's got to be someone who has studied intimate relationships sure. and how they form and how they sustain. And so I started looking at that. And in fact, there have been people studying this for about 60 years. There's really no excuse to just go by opinion anymore. I learned this stuff initially for myself. And then I started applying it to other people who approached me to, to ask if I would help them because it worked for me. And uh, then that eventually became a blog and a book. So um, I just really love it that science can be so immediately helpful in our lives, in such an important area of our lives. Yeah, I mean, literally an everyday area of our lives, you know. Um, yeah, you know, science shows us that um, of everything, every decision you're likely to make in your life, the decision of whether to have uh, a marriage partner and the decision of which specific marriage partner you choose is the most important decision you're going to make in terms not just of your personal happiness, and but also your wealth, your career productivity, your career advancement, uh, your sex life, how satisfied you are with sex, how often you're having sex, uh, how well your children do. I don't know anyone who doesn't want a thumbs up on all these things. And, and really, science can help you get that. And that's really what my bottom line is, is, okay, how can science help you get that? Yeah, that makes so much sense because when you think about it, that one – I mean it's a huge decision. But that one decision of who I will or will not be with stems off into so many other decisions. Do I take this job in another state? Do I have kids? Do I, I mean that kind of sets you up for the rest of your life when you think about it. 
It really does. And when I was in college, to the extent that I was exposed to this kind of information, it was really with a very skeptical eye toward the fact that most of the data at that time were correlational, meaning that you couldn't say, oh, we know that this is cause and effect. We, instead, it was, we know these things are associated with each other. And so I remember a professor of mine who said, well, yeah, okay, married people are happier, they're wealthier, they live longer, they're uh, they're healthier, you know, basically everything is going better for them, except maybe they're not better looking than other people. Um, <laughs> and we know this to be true. And by the way, every study has found that those things are true uh, still today. We know these things are true, but maybe it's just that the people who already are doing really well are getting married. And what science since then has found is that, no, this is true even if you got married and then later divorced. You lose all the benefits if you divorce. So, so none of that carries over if you've been divorced. It doesn't carry over. If you're widowed, it doesn't carry over. There's something special about finding a good life partner and making a permanent commitment to that person. So what happens if you're divorced or widowed and then you find another partner? Then you get the benefits back. Oh, so you just need to stay, stay uh, married apparently. Yeah. And obviously, it's funny. I, I've gotten feedback on other podcasts. People write to me afterward and say, oh my gosh, you scared me to death, Dr. Welch. I really feel like now I just have to rush right out and find the first available <laughs> man or woman and, and propose to them. Um, I want to be very clear that the most productive and happiest people on planet Earth are happily married and the least productive and least happy people are the unhappily married. This is an important decision. But I, will, I want to follow that up with, with two statements. Statement number one is the vast majority of married people are happy. It's simply not true that most people are unhappy. The current lifetime odds of divorce are only about one-third. That means two-thirds of people who get married seem to be in it forever. So it's not 50-50 like you've heard. And the second thing is a pretty major study found that among people who were considering getting divorced, those who considered getting divorced but went ahead and stuck with it reported themselves as very happy within five years. So in other words, if you have loved someone, odds are pretty high that you can love them again. And that hanging in there, if you uh, are with somebody with a similar value system to yours and who is kind and respectful or who can even learn to be kind and respectful. Hanging in there is a worthwhile endeavor. So I uh, say this as a happily married person, by the way. Good. Yeah, it'd be really bad if you were some bitter old uh, divorced lady. <laughs> well, I have been a bitter old divorced lady, but now I'm a bitter reju I, I'm a happy rejuvenated married lady. <laughs> <laughs> much, much better. Yes, I find it a vast improvement. Yeah. So two things that are very interesting. One is marriage uh, is that at both spectrums, either you're super happy or super unhappy. And the other thing you're saying is don't give in to the lull. You know, it's, it, you might be having a bad period in relationship, might be a bad few months, just kind of stick in there and ride it out and usually it gets better. Yes, unless uh, you've got the three A's. The three A's really are deal breakers. Um, the, and here's what research shows about um, who divorces and why they divorce. About two-thirds of divorces that are about half to two-thirds. They're not really sure. It's somewhere in there. Half to two-thirds of divorces that are happening are happening between people who really could uh, not only make it work but really return to honeymoon levels of happiness. They really could be happy together. Hmm. The and So those, it, those divorces are a real shame because um, – Unfortunately, while you can find someone and get the benefits of marriage again, if you've had children, your children are better off with the person that brought them into the world. They're better off with the two of you together. So it's a tragedy for them, even if you put your own life back together. Um, and the odds of divorce in a second marriage and a third marriage are exponentially higher than they are for a first marriage. The current odds for a second divorce, they're above 55%, I know for sure. The odds with a third marriage of having a divorce are uh, 75%. Is that just because doing all that kind of alters your values a little bit? It's like, well, I've done it once or I've done it twice. What's another one going to hurt? Yeah, it does appear that it, this goes, by the way, a lot of what I talk about goes contrary to my own emotions. I, I'm pretty careful not to include my opinion. Or if I have an opinion that's just my opinion, I'll tell you that's what I'm giving you. <laughs> my, my own gut, and I appreciate it when other people do that too. I yeah, also appreciate yeah. those three little words, I don't know. So um, the answer to that is I don't know for sure why um, second and third marriages tend to self-immolate, 
But I, I can tell you that scientists have some pretty good clues. One of those clues is the presence of children from any former union. Nobody loves your children like you do. Sure. This bottom line, you're genetically primed to prefer your children to anybody else on the planet. And so, uh, you know, that feeling that you get for those of you who have kids, uh, or if you will have kids someday, and let's face it, a lot of us don't know if we're going to have kids. Half the kids are accidental. Right. <laughs> so, so if you have kids someday, uh, the feeling of love for them is just tremendous and overpowering. And it's, it's a true genetic pull toward these people you've created. And nobody else feels that pull. And in fact, there are scientists in Canada who um, started asking other people, you know, why do you think child abuse happens? And these other people said, oh, we think it happens because someone's drunk, or we think it happens because someone is a, a child predator, and they marry someone, uh, they have kids, and they then hide their sexual or physical abuse from the other parent because this is what they wanted all along or because they're just a bad seed. And um, these researchers in Canada, they didn't think that was true. They thought that genetic investment explained almost all child abuse. And in order to um, examine their claim, they asked for data to police records of um, abuse cases where children were either murdered or they were severely physically or sexually abused. We're not talking about the little spank occasionally. We're right. talking about severe abuse. And what they found was that the single biggest predictor of whether a child would be severely physically abused, severely sexually abused, or um, actually even murdered was, can you guess? Step-parents. Yes, the wrong step-parent is specifically the wrong stepdad. Look, in every culture, there are, there are fables about the evil stepmother, but she right. just treats her own kids d better. She doesn't actually kill you. Um, every culture also has stories about the lustful or evil stepfather, and the lustful or evil stepfather is much more apt to actually commit murder. So it turned out that these kids who had any male living in the household who was an adult and was not genetically related to those children, those kids were 60 to 100 times likelier to be victims of these forms of abuse and murder. Wow. It, it was by far the single biggest factor in child abuse and child murder that has ever been found. And so what I'm saying to you is if you if you marry someone else and, you know, the vast majority of step-parents are good people. Sure. I'm a step-parent myself, by the way, but I've got to tell you, I've I never been... I Yeah, I, I've never been able to love my stepson as much as I love my daughter. I'm not saying that I treated him worse. He, he's now an adult and lives elsewhere, but I'm not saying I treated him worse than my daughter. I'm saying that at a physical gut level, my heart just went, ah, when I saw my daughter. And it never did that naturally for my stepson. I had to nurture that feeling. Does that make sense? It makes total sense. And I, I think if, if you talk to that person as an adult today, they'd probably understand that even. Because I think the stepchild is obviously going to love the real parent more than the stepparent. They really they really usually do, or they have a lot of conflicted feelings. I know my daughter loves her biological dad, but she also loves my husband. And she kind of flip-flops on her feelings, almost like she feels like I have to choose one, mm -hmm. even though that's not been presented as a reality for her, as something she has to do. So uh, what I'm trying to say is a lot of our behaviors are at some level genetically motivated, not just culturally motivated, but genetically motivated. And so if you are in a first marriage with children you've created with this person, you're better off trying to fall back in love with them unless you have one of the three A's, looping back around. Okay, and here are the three A's. And about one-third to one-half of divorces happen for these reasons. And if your divorce happens for these reasons, it's uh, what scientists might call a, a legitimate divorce because you really weren't going to get any happier. Okay. Uh, this is chronic adultery. I want to emphasize chronic. I'm not talking one time, one mistake. You can get over it. In fact, two-thirds of people who get caught in an affair, their their marriage works out. So I know we all think, oh my gosh, if my spouse cheated on me, I'd be gone forever. But most people actually don't divorce um, over that unless it's chronic. If it is chronic, then there's a certain level of profound disrespect uh, inherent in the relationship and it's not going to work out. Another uh, area where you're going to be actually better off economically if you divorce. In fact, this is the only time a person is better off economically if they divorce is if one of the partners is chronically addicted to anything. Sure. That makes sense. 
If they have a chronic addiction, they're a drain on you emotionally, they're a drain on your kids emotionally, but they're also a financial drain just constantly. And um, they create liabilities in your life. They don't help you solve problems. They become the problem. And again, this is if it's chronic. It's not if, you know, uh, let's say that as sometimes happens, there's some kind of major tragedy in your lives. And one of you turns to drugs and alcohol rather than really dealing with this tragedy mm-hmm. and then realizes, you know what, this isn't working out. Like I be- my daughter's a type 1 diabetic and I belong to this group online where there are parents who talk about the adjustment to having a child with a chronic condition. And uh, there was a note from someone the other day who's got a newly diagnosed child and his child almost died. And he, his wife and he are not getting along. Well, most parents divorce after their child's diagnosed with something chronic because the stress, stress is the antichrist of emotional closeness. It just is. Well, you know, the problem was that the wife is starting to drink really heavily. If she can get help, that marriage can work. And the child and the husband and the wife are much better off. But if she refuses to get help and this becomes an ongoing chronic issue that uh, she doesn't want to solve, then that marriage isn't going to work and the child's better off spending time with the parent who's sober. Sure, that makes sense. So that's that's condition number two. So there's uh, chronic adultery, chronic addiction. And then the third one is abusiveness. If this person, uh, and I'm going to define scientifically what abuse is, abuse is the sustained attempt to control the other partner's behavior. Oh, so not just physical abuse. Correct. It could be financial abuse. I got a letter from a woman whose husband had moved all of the money into his name. It's not legal in the state they inhabit, but you know, she didn't have the money for a lawyer. Where was she going to turn? And so he had frozen all of the assets, uh, moved them to an account that was solely his and doled out minuscule amounts of funds so that she couldn't go anywhere without his permission. He uh, read the odometer and clocked the distance to any place she said she was going to go. Wow. That's abuse. Even if he never says anything hurtful, even if he never lays a hand on her other than in love, that is abuse because it's a sustained, ongoing attempt to control her behavior. And it just sounds completely insane. Yes. Well, um, it turns out that uh, abuse is normally perpetrated on women from age 15 to about 50. That is during their fertile years. And it's usually perpetrated by a male who is uh, at an unconscious level, attempting to make sure that any children born to her will be his biologically. Sound kind of a uh, caveman-like response. It's funny you should mention that, Greg. My husband and I were talking about this very thing last night, that he's reading a book um, about how the human biological system is similar to every other animal on the planet, and to many plants, actually, that we're all genetically related, and that understanding things about uh plants and animals under, helps us, us, and we are animals, to understand things about ourselves. And I said, you know, that's one of the reasons why um, we're reaching a point of true global threat to ourselves and to every other creature is because our brains have not changed substantially in the last 45,000 years. And we basically have caveman and cavewoman brains, and we have their psychology Their psychology doesn't understand things like global warming. Their psychology doesn't understand things like overcrowding. Sure. Their psychology understands things like, I know 120 other people and that's it. And I have to think about those people and no one else. And in fact, studies of uh, Facebook connections show that you may think you know thousands of people, but you actually only reliably interact with and seem to know about 120, about as many as your ancient ancestors would have been able to keep tabs on. So, uh, yeah, you've got an absolutely valid point in there. Not that I'm rambling or anything, Greg. <laughs> no, no, that's, that's really interesting. I like that. I was trying to look right now to see how many Facebook friends I have now that you've said that. Uh, yeah, so I have a lot. 225. Yeah, so so it turns out that even people who have thousands, they only reliably interact with, um, you know, about a hundred. Interesting. You know, yeah, I like I said, I have 225, and, and not including you know podcast uh, acquaintances and other things like that. But the number that I actually talk to on any somewhat regular basis is much lower than that. Yeah, and I've been a a professor for a long time. Um, I started teaching when I was 25 at the University of Florida. And over the years, teaching at first at Florida and then in California and then in Texas and uh, now moving to Eugene, Oregon. Um, 
there are a lot of people I know that I don't know. <laughs> that sure. makes sense. And, and I try to keep track of them because I care about them. But your brain makes it really hard to care about that many people. So um, anyway, back to intimate relationships. Yes. What were we talking about? I need you to get me back on track. <laughs> uh, we're talking about so many things. Don't worry about going off track. I love it. Um, but let's, let's relate this a little bit to that caveman kind of psychology. Um, what parts... Uh, do, what parts of relationship do men and women view differently and why do they view them differently? Well, I'd like to start that. I love that question. I'd like to start by emphasizing that men and women are very largely the same. Um, global studies. So what I, one of the things I love about relationship science is that some of the scientists who've conducted these studies realized that because of cultural differences, if we wanted to find any major truths about how people conduct their relationships, we would have to look at people across the entire world and not just at people in one or two different societies. Sure. So there are some scientists, such as uh, Dr. David Buss, who've orchestrated studies in more than 37 countries and cultures from uh, hunter-gatherer cultures to agricultural cultures to industrialized nations all across the world, to find out where they're similar and where they're different. And they found that, first of all, uh, across the globe, if you want to be a desirable mate, if you want to have a long, happy life with someone who adores you, here's what everyone wants. Okay. They want someone kind. They want some respectful, someone respectful. They want someone loyal. And they want somebody who's about as smart as they are. Most people don't want to be drastically outclassed on the smarts category. They want a, a peer. And, and I want to emphasize that the intellect, that doesn't mean the same number of type of degrees. Uh, it means that when you talk with this person, you feel like you're speaking with a peer. That makes total sense. Uh, not to get off on a tangent or anything, but I've, I've talked about this before. I've dated girls who were, if you look at what education they have, are extremely smart, smarter than I. But when I have conversations with them, I feel like I'm grinding my nails on a chalkboard. Yeah, you need to feel that sense of connection. Like you've got an intellectual comp compatibility that's happening. Mm -hmm. So uh, what I want to emphasize about, um, one of my students pointed out, hey, that spells kill, kind, intelligent, loving, loyal. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I'm sorry, kind and kind, kindness and respect go together, but kind, intelligent, loving, and loyal. So kill them with kindness. Um, but one of my students also pointed out, you know, that means the women love jerks thing is not really true, is it? Which is uh, kind of what we're told, especially as young males. Yeah, there is some truth to it when you're a young male. You know, when you're a really young male, you're not, at least in, in modern societies, in uh, industrialized societies, you're not really in a position to get married as a very young male. Right. And uh, there are cultures where you are more in a position to do so, or the, the tribe around you uh, or the religious group around you lets you marry young, but then they kind of raise both of you together while you finish maturing. Um, but in mainstream industrialized societies, if you're not in that position, think about high school and think about who had the most status. It was normally jerky guys. Right. Totally. And for, uh, deep seated biological reasons, women are primed psychologically to prefer men who are abundantly willing and able to provide and protect. And so it if if your current environment is high school and the guy who's got the most uh, status, which is a sign of provision and protection, is the jerk, then you're going to be the jerk's girlfriend. But what happens after high school is men get in a position to actually launch themselves into a career or a real life. And it turns out that uh, being a jerk is kind of a double-edged sword at this point. Everyone thinks that the jerks go further and faster in business, but actually it's not true. And it is true. Jerks have a higher divorce rate and they are less satisfied with the relationships they have. So hmm. there's a jerk perk when you're really young. As you get older, it's more and more to your advantage to be kind of respectful. And what you see is global studies of women of various ages are finding that they don't want the jerk. Now, jerks do probably, I will, I'm going to say this caveat. If all you want is to get laid, sure, you can do that by being a jerk. You can. Sure. But you know what I've found? The science is right. Most guys don't just want to get laid. They do that for a while. They get bored of it. They want someone who cares about them most sincerely and genuinely and who loves them. 
And you don't get that by just getting laid. And so the whole idea that, oh, men are cads. They never want to settle down. Women have to trick them into it. That's all bullshit. Sorry if you don't like cussing. (laughs) Not a problem. No FCC here. (laughs) It's just not true. Guys are good guys, just like there's a lot of good women. There's a lot of good men. So I always tell men, don't be afraid to be a good man. That's what women are looking for. To get back to your other question about what do the sexes want that's different, it turns out that despite our widespread cultural view that men and women are exactly alike, just with different uh, genitals. We are profoundly different in a couple reliable psychological ways. We do see the world quite differently. And, and this gets down to men preferring the two Fs and women preferring the two Ps. Men want fertility and fidelity. Okay. Men everywhere want fertility and fidelity, and they can see fertility. You know, think about if a man had to, in caveman days, he had to work out in his, if he had to do math to figure out whether a woman had the right waist-to-hip ratio to be procreative. <laughs> I mean, men are endlessly procreative, but women aren't. In the right. ancient past, very few women in your domain would have been able to cast your genes forward. Most of them were either too young, too old, or already pregnant, or nursing. Sure. So if you want to cast your genes forward, you have to be able to tell at a glance, she's capable. And so today, every man in the whole world, including blind men, prefer uh, a woman who has a 0.7 waist to hip ratio. But it's not like they're thinking, hmm, she has a 0.7 waist to hip ratio. Her waist is thus 30% smaller than her hips. I shall tap that. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's not like this is conscious. In fact, what's so pernicious about a lot of... Um, Mating psychology is that it's unconscious. And this is why people have those fights on Twitter and Facebook and other social media about, you know, oh, that's really sexist. Men and women are just the same. You need to shut up now. And I sit back there and just watch and see what people are saying. It's not stupid. Men and women are not just the same. And this message needs to get out. People do not need to shut up. Uh, It doesn't mean that men and women are, um, that there's one that's better. I think that's why people get offended by that. It's as if we're saying that one sex has the right answer and the other doesn't. And that's not the case. But there is a mating dance that goes on, and it's largely unconscious. And in this mating dance, men definitely attempt to get someone who is youthful and beautiful. That taps into fertility. And by the way, gay men also try to get somebody youthful and beautiful. Interesting, even though they know they're not going to be procreating. Exactly. It's This isn't about what you consciously want. You know, guys who have had all the children they ever want and have had a vasectomy try to get youth beautiful, youthful, beautiful partners. This isn't about your conscious program. It's about your, um, it's about your, your program, your, your back, temp, back, what am I trying to say, Greg? <laughs> it's, it's about your running, the program that runs your whole system, which you're not consciously aware of. And it's saying, go for youth and beauty if you're a guy. It's not telling you why to go for youth and beauty. And in fact, if you really think about it, really, a guy in his 60s whose kids are already grown, who uses condoms or gets a vasectomy, he doesn't need youth and beauty. Right. He doesn't need it, but he still wants it. It's very interesting. There's a, a big study that's been done um, on what people look for when they think nobody's looking. Okay. Uh, especially on sites like OkCupid where they collect, the, it's free to be on there, but they collect all your data sure. for studies. And it turns out that uh, men usually marry someone who's in their same generation. But if they're just looking at pictures, they look at pictures of women who are under 21. Once you're 21, you're over the hill. Really? Yeah, they look at pictures of women. When they think nobody's looking, the women they look at are uh, just barely legal. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. So, yeah, and that taps in. Yeah, well, but it taps into, again, the background program that says, look, whatever your conscious brain may want, I, the background program, want you to cast your genes forward, dude. And you got to do that with somebody perfectly fertile. And this woman is it. Interesting. So we've been programmed. To want hot girls, essentially. Yes, basically. And the way that hot is defined is a 0.7 waist-to-hip ratio and other signs of youth and beauty, such as clear, unwrinkled skin that's mm-hmm. not pockmarked, which could be a sign of disease and thus less good genes. Sure. Uh, or less capability of successfully rearing children. But none of this is conscious. So men are looking for fertility. They can see it with their eyes. They're also looking for fidelity, and they can't see that with their eyes. So how do they look for fidelity? Well, some of this is just purely genetic. For example, uh, men have, they produce more sperm uh, than any other creature on the planet, more sperm per ejaculate. 
And studies right now are showing that between 2 and 20% of children are being reared by a guy who falsely believes he's the dad, depending on the mm. culture. Some cultures it's really low, and some cultures it's much higher. It's culturally driven. But uh, women have not always been faithful, or else men would have a very low sperm count. Now, some of that infidelity was not by choice. Men have always waged war, and one of the prices they've exacted in war always has been and still is, they rape women so that the men coming home from war face the ultimate humiliation of not knowing whether progeny are theirs. Huh. That's actually kind of funny. I've never heard it that way. Well, and, and again, it's not a conscious program. Okay. Um, there are some really great books that, that kind of, I love the feeling of being drowned in data, like, oh, stop, stop, I can't take more. <laughs> and <laughs> there's some really excellent books that just, you know, they take the argument I'm making and they expand it to a 350-page uh, single-space type small font book. <laughs> and they make, it's impossible to leave this with the perspective that our mating psychology is largely conscious. It's unconscious. We're doing this stuff because our program tells us it will help us personally to survive and procreate. And if you're a man, your program for procreation is very different than a woman's. A woman doesn't have to figure out if a guy's fertile. Men are fertile all their lives. Women do not look at your waist to hip ratio. Sure. Yeah. They don't care. They don't care about that. So do they care if a guy's good looking? Yeah, if they're looking for a one night stand. But if they're looking for a husband, if you're super good looking, that can actually work against you. Really? Yes. It never works against a woman. It can work against a guy because guess what? When women do make themselves sexually available to someone that they don't know at all, guess who it is? The really hot guy. Yeah. And they do it because if they're going to trade off security and bring someone into the world who, again, our, our brains are from cave person days, bring a child into the world who might end their life in a dangerous childbirth or them not being able to provide for themselves or their families kicking them out or whatever, boy, it better be worth it. This child better have superior genes. And guess what? I wish I could tell you beauty was only skin deep, but the hot guys have superior genes. Interesting. Yeah, they, they have more um, immunity and uh, survivorship to confer to their children. And so women, when they do cuckold their mates, they will often cuckold them with someone who's got superior genes. So there's the guy who's earning the money that's keeping everyone afloat, and then there's the guy who contributed the genes to her baby. Hey, slam dunk for her. She always know, knows whose kid it is. It's hers. So stereotypically, the woman, if she cheats, is going to go after a much better looking guy. If she does the one night stand thing, yes. Uh, if she, the vast majority of cases of cheating are not the one night stand scenario. They're the scenario where, um, in, in a woman's case, and cheating happens very differently for men versus women. Mm -hmm. This is part of our differing psychology. Most women are going to cheat with a guy that they already know who they have accidentally fallen in love with, especially if their husband is ignoring them. Right. There was a country song a long time ago. Uh, some of them have such great, titles. I remember one that I, I used to hear. I was raised in central Texas and it was called drop kick me Jesus through the goalpost of life. <laughs> but <Wow>. there was, <laughs> I mean, that is great, but I think that sums up Texas. I, I, it may. Yeah. Yeah. It just, yeah, you, you're probably right there. Um, but, and I say that as a sixth generation Texan, mm -hmm. uh, but another really great title that research actually endorses, which is not drop kick me Jesus is, um, Lonely women make good lovers. No, oh, don't let your woman get lonely. Mm -mm, don't do it. <laughs> do not do it. And, and actually, that is when most women who are going to cheat, cheat when they're lonely. So if a woman tells you I'm lonely, the appropriate response is, let's not be lonely anymore. What may I do, dear? Yes. <laughs> so anyway, getting back to um, the idea of different mating psychology. Um, so men want fertility and fidelity, and how they gauge fidelity is partly purely biological. They create more sperm, which can potentially dislodge another man's sperm. They also ejaculate many more sperm um, after a separation from their mate than on just a regular time when they weren't separated from her. So if they go on a business trip, this is fascinating to me. If they go on a business trip, even if they eject, even if they whack off while they're on this business trip, <laughs> even if they masturbate during the business trip, when they come back home and they have sex with their wife or girlfriend, the ejaculate has many more sperm than if they'd been there the same amount of time having sex the same amount of time. Wow. The whole time. 
So that points to a very real drive that men have toward uh, paternity assurance, making sure that children are theirs. Another, so we've got these physiological ways for men to protect their paternity investment and make sure the kids are theirs, but we also have psychological mechanisms. And one of them is that men feel a sudden loss of regard, respect, or interest in a woman who has sex with them immediately, usually. Even if the guy is really liberal, even if he was really trying to have sex with her, even if he told her how interested he was or said he thought he was falling in love, most men lose interest if a woman has sex with them immediately. That makes sense. I've had that happen. Well, and, <laughs> and you know, honest. yeah, well, what, and what women think is, God, Greg's such an asshole. I mean, right. look at what he did. He said he liked me and now I'm not hearing from him. What the hell? I hear from these women all the time. Not about you, by the way, Greg, just, <laughs> just in Hopefully. general. And what I say to them is he probably really was interested in you. You know, it doesn't mean he's a player or a cad that he backed off, but just like his body is wired to make sure that any resulting children from a liaison are his. His mind is also wired that way. It turns out that statistically, women who give it up quickly are slightly more likely than women who don't give it up quickly to have affairs, even after there's commitment. Huh. Yeah, so men are basically psychologically protected at some level from uh, the woman who might cast her own genes forward and not his. Interesting. And so that- men are interested in those things. What was that? I'm sorry, I was going to say, let me ask you this. Talking about uh, infidelity, women uh, who are looking to cast genes go up in, uh, in, in looks. They, they find someone who's more attractive. So often you hear, you know, especially with celebrities, yeah. they, they cheat on their celebrity wife with someone who is so not attractive compared to who they're with. You know, Tony Parker cheated on Eva Longoria. How could you ever cheat on Eva Longoria? She's so hot. Why is it that guys tend to move down in their cheating status and, and girls kind of move up, if you will. Well, first of all, um, so, I mean, Eva Longoria, he, you're not going to be able to match her. He only had one direction to go. Right. <laughs> I was having this discussion the other night. He either can go lateral or down. He's not going to yeah, go yeah, up. Yeah, and lateral is a real small pool. You know? Yes. So, so he's, you know, that's the way that's going to go. So there's some really interesting studies on um, asking men and women about their short-term partners, what they would want from a one-night stand. And first of all, most women won't ever have a one-night stand. They just won't do it. Hmm. Okay. Uh, the vast majority of men will. Um what the research shows is that when it comes to a marriage partner, men and women are equivalently picky. They're not picky about the exact same things. Men, they both look for kindness, intelligence, loyalty, and love. But once those bases are covered, they have some really substantial difference. And that's for a long-term partner. I'm sorry. They don't care at all about kindness. Yeah. Uh, for, for a marriage partner, they both care a lot about kindness, intelligence, loyalty, lovingness. But then there are these reliable differences where men look for fertility and fidelity and women who we haven't really covered yet look for provision and protection. Sure. And uh, then the researchers asked, okay, you've given us what you want in a marriage partner. If you were going to have a one-night stand, what qualifications would this person have to meet? What, what is this person like? And uh, men basically gave an answer that amounted to, well, is she breathing? (laughs) It's funny. uh, Some really famous scientists uh, who are male who collected these data said that men had standards uh, that were abysmally low, that's quote, when it came to a one-night stand partner. And if you think about where our psychology comes from in the ancient past, that makes sense. Because if a male had access to 120 fertile women in a given year – even if he didn't invest anything in any of these kids, yeah, most of them are going to die. You know, if, if a, all 120 women have a child for him 45,000 years ago, mm-hmm. most of the kids are going to die because he's not bringing home any wild boar for them to eat. Right. Okay. Right. Okay. But some of them are going to live. So let's say five of them live. Well, he's up five genetically. Now let's consider her. If she has sex with 120 fertile dudes that year, how many babies does she have that year? She only gets one. She gets one. So it makes a lot of sense for her if she's going to take the colossal risk of childbirth in an era where Target is not nearby and where there's no hospital. It makes (laughs) tremendous sense for her to be really picky. And so it turns out that women are not only picky when it comes to a one-night stand partner, they're even pickier about their one-night stand partner than they would be about a husband. He has to be better than a husband. Interesting. 
And this is why, you know, like Wilt Chamberlain and famous, uh, who was a basketball star long ago, right. bragged that he had betted 10,000 women. Um, this is why guys like him, uh, who are very famous or prime ministers or presidents or what have you, or rock stars, I call it the rock star effect. This is why uh, they get a lot of sex. This is why there was a phenomenon called Beatles Babies, women in England who <laughs> attempted to have a one-night stand with John Paul George or Ringo in order to get pregnant. Mm -hmm. uh, and it turns out that a guy who manages to differentiate himself from hundreds and thousands of other men so effectively has something going on. That woman is making, in, in some sense, a reasonable uh, gamble. She's taking a reasonable bet here. And uh, think about Wilt Chamberlain's mom. When she had Wilt, she had one baby that year. But when he, he had sex with 10,000 women, he potentially cast her genes forward 10,000 times. Right. That's called the sexy son's hypothesis, the idea that a woman who is uh, casually sexual will often choose a very high-status mate so that her genes can be replicated many times through his eventual, through her son's eventual sexual activity. Interesting. Yeah, isn't that fascinating? Yeah. And so so the sexes, they're just looking for different things, and that has really big implications for how people act when they're first meeting, if they're heterosexual. Okay. And, and based on that, where obviously if you have sex, a guy has sex with 120 girls, they could all be pregnant, and the opposite, if girls have sex with 120 guys, only you know one baby, is that kind of the beginning you know, back in the caveman times of you know girls being shamed for having sex with lots of people where guys are like you know high-fived for it? Yeah, I think so. I mean, of course, we, do, we don't know that for sure. And, and I have to tell you, not every society shames girls for being sexual. Uh, there are island societies where the expectation is that girls will be sexual. And in fact, the expectation is that when uh, a girl reaches puberty that she will find a boyfriend who, um, I want to say this is the Trobriand Islands, but I'm not sure of that. I can't remember which island culture this is. Okay. Um, it, the family expects this boyfriend to sneak in at night and give that girl multiple orgasms. And if he can't do it, he's wow. lame. Like the family's listening. And if he doesn't get her off multiple times, he's a bad lover. That's a lot so, of pressure. Yeah. And yet no pressure, 14 or 15 year old kid. Yeah. Who doesn't um, know what he's doing? <laughs> But he figures it out, you know, and so it's not slut shaming is not uh, invariably practiced globally. Um, however, I want to emphasize that in the cultures where it's not practiced, usually it's pretty easy to survive. There's a lot of fish or there's a lot of game or, you know, uh, it's pretty easy for the, the members of that that tribe or culture to support everybody that's born. And uh, I really believe that things like so-called honor killings, which uh, – I believe, you know, those are, to my westernized way of thinking, those are a crime right. and they should be punishable as such. But I think they originated with places and times when it was difficult to provide for everyone in the tribe and where uh, a woman who would be, of course, exceptionally vulnerable during pregnancy and childbirth and nursing and all the time until that child was fairly well launched, if her family couldn't provide for her, she needed a, a, a mate who would take on the lion's share of that responsibility. And if she didn't find one, if the cost was too high for the culture to bear, I think that's where this came from. But I can't prove that. That's my own thought there. Okay. I want to dig into this deeper, but we do have limited time, so I got to yeah. move on to other questions. I'm so intrigued by all of this. Um, so if you don't mind, I'm going to move on to some, some lighter questions. Yeah. Uh, first, I had a listener want to know, is love at first sight a real thing? It is. And I love that question. You know, okay, so I've got this website where I answer people's love questions as if I were Dear Abby on science. You know, I just talk like I'm talking now, but everything I say is based on science there. And so a couple of years ago, someone wrote to me and uh, asked that question. And yes, I, I was surprised to learn that there are studies. First of all, there are studies on this. Who knew? Hmm. And uh, second of all, that yes, love at first sight is a real thing. And uh, that men are more likely, more than twice as likely than women to report that they have experienced love at first sight. This and yeah, which makes sense because women in the ancient past and today looked for provision and protection, but not just somebody who had the goods to support them. 
somebody who would willingly do so. And how do you know if a guy's willing to stick by you when you're, you know, big as a tent and, and round <laughs> as a barrel. And then, you know, you have a headache half the time nursing the kid. How do you know the guy's going to stick around for that? Cause he loves you. Mm-hmm. So women really value love. And we have thus over the last millennia, we have, uh, selected for men who love us. So in effect, there's pressure on you guys to say that you love us very quickly. May not have ever thought about that, but it's true. So mm-hmm. thus, men are twice as likely as women to say that um, they are in love at first sight. And most of them mean it. Some of them are just trying to get in your knickers, but most of them mean it. <laughs> um, that's another interesting finding is that the guys out there who are just really you know, playing the field just to get laid, they have figured it out. Hey, if I say this, I get sex. True. So I always tell women, you know, wait till he says it, says it, and he proves it to you. Anyway, uh, what really fascinated me about the love at first sight research was this: the people who got married who experienced love at first sight. I just thought, okay, well, love at first sight it exists, but you know, this can't work. <laughs> they were really happy. Interesting. It actually worked. Wow, I, that's not what I would assume. I would assume that the love at first sight is just a very lustful relationship, and eventually it fizzles out. I know it's it's crazy, but it's true. You okay. know, it, this isn't the path to love that most people take or find. But I've just been reading a, a novel about the Romanov dynasty um, about their daughters, and um, the the Romanovs, uh, Nicholas II, the last Tsar of Russia, he fell in love with Alexandra the first time he saw her and she didn't marry him for something like seven more years and he never fell out of love with her. He was crazy about her. Hmm. I mean, she looked like the oldest grandma by the time that the revolution happened because she was so <laughs> ill and so stressed. He adored her. He really did. Interesting. Yeah, it can last a lifetime. All right. Well, noted. Um, question I wanted to ask you for personal reasons or should I say uh, selfish reasons how can the scientific method be applied to help your sex life? Well, uh, interesting. So um, the first most helpful thing probably to know is that married people are not only having sex much more than single people. Isn't that shocking? It's not what you hear. It's not what you hear. But in any given year, a single woman is 20 times likelier to have no sex whatsoever than a married woman. And the figures are not quite that dire for men, but they're close. Because I was going to say, is it the opposite for men? No. Nobody – think about it. You know, when I was single and when my husband was single, in order to find someone for the night, if we wanted that, we had to shave something, clean something, (laughs) go out somewhere and impress someone. I mean, you know, it was work. Yeah, there's definitely some effort put into that. <laughs> yeah, whereas now, you know, you kind of just reach over in bed and go, "Hey, babe, how about how about it? Would you brush your teeth first? Okay, I mean, yeah. <laughs> it's so. So the first thing I can tell you please. is that living together and being married, you're going to have more sex than any other living arrangement, and that if you want to have more of a sex drive, you should have more sex. Don't wait to be in the mood; have sex, and you'll get in the mood. But the second thing I want to emphasize is there have also been comparisons done of people who are cohabiting and people who are married, and they find that not only are married people having about as much sex as people who are cohabiting, but that they're having better sex. That shocked me. I really thought, oh, well, the cohabitors' relationships tend to be newer. They're founded on lust usually, so they're going to be – it turned out that people are more satisfied with their sex lives if they're married and being married a longer time, they're usually more satisfied. They usually don't have it quite as much over the years, but they're very deeply emotionally and, and physically satisfied with the sex they do have. And men, men report a greater benefit from this than women do, which really surprised me. It's very surprising. Men are usually the ones that want to go out and get as much, uh, you know, strange, if you will, than anybody. Yeah. Well, you know, again, talking about the ancient past where the guy who had a, a cave wife, but also a bunch of cave hoes, you know, I mean, <laughs> he, he was casting his seed and, and he left behind more kids than uh, faithful Charlie who left kids only with his cave wife. And so today men's psychology is dominated by the psychology that would have worked 45,000 years ago. Men prefer variety in the abstract, but when you ask them emotionally, physically, which sex feels the very best to you, married men 
report the highest levels hands down. You know, it's interesting. It kind of relates to a guest we had on the show a couple months ago. Uh, his name is Dave Pounder. He's a male porn star, but he's also done a lot of research into relationships <laughs> and said that men uh, naturally need to be able to cheat on their women, but want to go back to you know that one wife or permanent girlfriend or whatever she may be. Well, I would rephrase it. I don't think they naturally need to be able to cheat on their women. Um, research is pretty clear that when men uh, do this and they get caught, they're either going to have to return to monogamy or they're going to have to square themselves with divorce. Mm -hmm. So it's not that they need to be able to cheat on their women. And the vast and, and most men are faithful. I want to emphasize that. You know, if you live in a world of uh, pornography, it's going to seem weird to be monogamous, but most people <laughs> are. You know, science is pretty clear that uh, the lifetime incidence of cheating for married people is almost half. But consider this. Half of these people are getting are being married for 30, 40, 50, 60 years, and they're never getting any strange, and they're happy. Hmm. And the other half that do – the other slightly less than half that do cheat, most of them are not profligate cheaters. They don't run around having uh, wanton sex with anyone who strikes their fancy. Most of them have an affair, which they regret and stop having. The uh, too much to drink at the Christmas party affair? Yeah. Uh, actually, the most <laughs> common affair for men and women is the I became friends with you at work and then we kind of got hot for each other and then we started telling each other things that we weren't telling our spouses and then we stopped mentioning to our spouses that we were talking to you and then we admitted that we were attracted to each other and then we decided to go out for coffee and then whoops, how is your penis in my vagina? How did that happen? <laughs> <laughs> and then regret. Yeah, and then, yeah, I've had some really, oh, gut-wrenching letters from men who were ending affairs who uh, had felt sucked into it as if it were some kind of black hole and they couldn't escape and they were trying to escape. One man had told his wife so that he could end it because he knew he didn't have the strength to end it on his own. And he knew if he told his wife that he wouldn't be able to face continuing to cheat on her with her knowing about it. And they went to marriage counseling and they, they were able to save their relationship um, and make it better than before. He never did it again. Uh, he lived a completely transparent life after that. And the reason he was writing to me was not to ask my advice about that. It was to ask my advice about how he could forgive himself because it really bothered him that he had done this. Wow. And so, yeah, the whole idea that men need to be able to get some strange. Uh, the vast majority of good men don't feel okay about getting some strange. They may want to. That's why they look at porn online at three in the morning. Sure. But they don't actually feel okay about it. Interesting. And I've and I've heard before that uh, you know the guy that that makes one mistake, you know, gets drunk, has an affair, and and that's the end of it. That the reason they tell their partner is not to uh, say be a good person, but it's because they're so guilty they can't not tell their partner. Yeah. You know. Um, I used to say to my husband, hey, if you ever have an affair, I don't want to know about it. You know, you've already you've already done this horrible thing. And again, for any of you who have open relationships, it's not horrible for you. It would be horrible for me. So in other words, I'm not making a value statement about your relationship. This sure. is about me and my relationship. So uh, I said, if you're going to do this thing that I disagree with and that I'm not okay with, then you're going to live with guilt for the rest of your life, jerk. <laughs> <You know? laughs> and, let's just be clear about this. It, but it turned out that, guess what? There's science about this too. And um, this woman named Shirley Glass, who unfortunately uh, is deceased, I would love to have had a conversation mm. with her, but she was killed in a car accident a few years ago. Wow. Uh, she was the world's most famous researcher on recovery from infidelity. Okay. And um, she found that it was necessary and helpful for the cheating partner to admit the indiscretion to uh, to their husband or wife or partner. Because she said trying to move forward without that admission was like waxing a dirty floor. <laughs> there was so much guilt that the cheating partner had uh, carried around with them that it made it difficult to move forward. And without uh, a clean break, it was difficult for that person to really give up the other person. The thing is, a lot of people who have affairs fall in love with their affair partner, men and women. The affair wasn't intended. It, we have this idea that only jerks have affairs. No, actually, it's mostly really good human beings who are happily married. They just happen to get close to someone through repeated contact in a very innocent setting. And they just started communicating more and more with that person and less and 
less with their maid, and the affair really did kind of just happen. But by the time it just happened, they were in love. And so when they're going to get rid of that affair partner, they're going to have to give up someone that they love. I wish that I could tell you the brain's only capable of loving one person at a time, but that's not true. The brain's capable of loving more than one person at a time. It's just really confusing, and it makes most people really anxiety-ridden and unhappy. So the love that you get, for most people, again, from a scientific perspective, most people find that it's not worth it. Hmm. But, you know, you're going to have to come clean because you're going to have to – clear your guilt and process with your mate how to move forward without this happening again. Sure. And, and breaking up with your, uh, you know, your, your GD is essentially an actual breakup. It's not just, Hey, I got to cut off this horrible act we're doing. It's I'm breaking up with you as if we've been in a relationship. That's right. Yeah. And sometimes these people, one of the most poignant instances of this is people who have, uh, gone on to social media looking for their first love because they tell themselves, oh, I'm so happily married. That love that I had when I was in eighth grade was just puppy love. I just want to see how he or she is doing. (laughs) Shocking affair rates from that behavior. Really? Yes. And not only that, but um, there's a typical thing that actually happens. Now, if the two people are both single at the time, this is a fantastic way to find the love of your life. Most people who loved each other when they were very young, but they were too young to act on it, mm-hmm. turns out they are fantastic for each other, and they wind up making this wonderful life together. But that's only if they're both single when they reconnect. If either or both of them are married, the typical s- scenario goes like this. They invite their spouses to go on the date, the, the meeting, because, hey, this is all innocent. I want you know my spouse to meet old so-and-so. They fall in love right there in front of their spouses. They fall in love again with this other person. They're now in love with both of them. Hmm. They start to have an affair on the side with the person they love from eighth grade. And uh, they actually, um, the, the women usually leave their husbands and children. And then the guy doesn't leave his wife. There she is flapping in the wind and wow. he sticks with his wife. It is a Friggin' train wreck. Don't go there. No, and, and it seems to be a, a more regular occurrence now with Facebook and everything. Yeah, it is. That's uh, actually, I think, almost the very first science-based piece that I ever wrote was about this phenomenon, and I actually wound up interviewing Nancy Kalish, the scientist who's behind a lot of the first love, lost love research. And, uh, oh my gosh, the world's of pain. You just want to go, make it stop. Just don't <laughs> go there unless you're sure you're both single. Wow. All right. I know we're running short on time and I have tons and tons of questions for you. So let me just get in one more and then hopefully maybe we can uh, do a, a part two at some point. I would love that. That'd be awesome. So let me ask you this. For people who are uh, single, maybe they've just met someone, what are the most important things to consider when starting a relationship and what are some red flags? Okay. So uh, the number one, the, the things you need to look for contain their own red flags. Okay. Here are the rock bottom standards. You need to find someone kind, respectful, and similar to you. I cannot emphasize enough how important these three things are. So with similarity, how you get that is make a list of everything you want in a partner. Look at that list, and I will bet it describes you pretty darn well. Interesting. And if so, research indicates that is an excellent list you've got there. You need to read it before every date. And <laughs> if somebody uh, has a deal breaker, don't keep going out with them. The deal's broken. No matter how, no matter if they got 99 out of 100 things, if they've got a deal breaker, and of course, some of the things you want are just once, but if they've got a deal breaker, don't go there. The deal's broken. Can't tell you how many people I've heard from who've been in relationships four, five, six, or more years with someone that they knew on the first date there was a deal breaker. So don't do it. If it, You need to know what your standards are, and you need to actually respect yourself enough to adhere to them. Um, but this, the second thing uh, is the kindness and respect aspect. Mm-hmm. If somebody is kind and respectful, your relationship is very likely to go well. And if they aren't, it won't. Uh, research can't be any more clear on this point. In fact, I think that is the big picture of the last 40 years of research on successful unions and unsuccessful unions is that kindness and respect are a must. But a lot of people don't know what that looks like. So I'm just going to kind of summarize real quickly. 
Kindness and respect means that this person behaves with goodwill towards others even when they have a bad day. And they behave with goodwill towards almost everyone else even if they have a bad day. In other words, yes, they might pop off the occasional swear word in the car if they got cut off on the road. But they don't then chase the other person down the road. Sure. Yes, they might be a little annoyed if the uh, if the service at the restaurant is slow, but they don't yell at the wait staff. They express themselves kindly and respectfully, for example, by saying, seems like uh, you might be a little busy tonight. Um, you know, uh, what's going on? Mm-hmm. They're not hateful or rude. Save it for Yelp. Yeah, or don't <laughs> even do it there. You know, yeah. kindness and respectfulness – I will go as far as to say um, it's the most important practice that you can engage in for the rest of your relationships for the rest of your life. Hmm. Really, there's no environment where it's okay to just pop off at people and be a douchebag. Right. It's just, it's just not – it's just it, – the more research I know, the more, the more it strikes me that uh, we really have to adult. Sometimes have, adulting is hard. Sometimes adulting really requires a lot of self-control, but what we know about people who make it and are happy and and really stay in love for a lifetime is they exert a lot of self-control. And uh, intimacy requires a lot of self-control. You just can't say every nasty thought or really almost any nasty thought that pops into your head. You have to take a step back and think, how can I phrase what I need in a kind, respectful way? So uh, the flip side of that is, what are the red flags? The red flags are anyone who shows you unkind and unkindness and disrespect because a lot of those people are abusers. Okay. And so how, how an abuser acts is um, they usually won't be unkind or disrespectful to you right away. They, they uh, kind of float trials out there. They, they, they put test balloons out there to see if you'll accept it. And if you will, then they start increasingly aiming their control at you. Uh, abusers will um, trash talk their ex. They will trash talk uh, the wait staff. Um, as humorous Dave Barry said, if they're nice to the nice to you but rude to the waiter, they're not nice. Hmm. True. Makes sense. True. And uh, so when I met my husband, he had been in a 19-year marriage that may be the most miserable marriage I've ever heard of. Wow. Uh, he had been divorced about a year when we met. And um, I asked him, as I asked everyone I dated, um, so, uh, you know, how are things going with your ex, if you have one? What are things like now? And is there anything you want to tell me about that? I asked that question because it was a litmus for kindness and respect. If someone's going to feel free to be hateful about someone, this is when it's going to come out. True. And so what he said was, well, you know, we had a really difficult marriage for a long time, and I've been through a lot of pain and and heartache. But for the sake of our son, we're really trying to get along. Now, that's a kind, respectful answer. He didn't say he loves her. He he also didn't say he hates her, did he? No, uh, that was pretty uh, politically correct, if you will. Yes, and and that level of self-control is really what it takes. Interesting. Yeah. There's just, you know, in the 70s, there was this popular brand of psychotherapy that said that uh, holding stuff in was bad for you and that uh, it was just eventually going to erupt and that you needed to yell and you needed to get it out. And what experiments show, what actual science on this shows is if you randomly assign some people to distract themselves with a magazine and other people to yell and get it out, the people who yell and get it out get angrier and angrier. They don't solve anything. The people who distracted themselves with the magazine actually come back, have a civilized, reasonable conversation that has some love involved and improve their relationship. And in the 70s, they also had primal rage therapy. They did. That's and not around it anymore. was not helpful. Unfortunately, <laughs> um, although there's excellent social science for almost any question you can ask or many of the questions you could ask now, um, unfortunately, therapy doesn't often or doesn't always um, – 
refer to the excellent research when therapies are created. Uh, that Actually, that was truer in the 70s than now. I think now in order to create a therapy that is going to be endorsed by the APA, you actually have to have a research basis, which is why therapies like cognitive behavioral therapy, thumbs up. Therapy like dialectical behavior therapy, thumbs up. These are therapies that actually have experimental proof that they work. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, instead of just throwing you in a room and telling you to yell and see if that works. Yeah, or throwing you in a room with someone that's listening to you that uh, is trying techniques that aren't going to help you. Sure. Uh, wow. I have <laughs> You have created a lot of more questions for me. But, oh, good. But I know our time is limited, so I, I, won't, uh, I won't keep any more. So thank you for, for joining me today. Like I said before, I hope we can do a part two. I have so many more questions, and I think the listeners are going to have more questions after they listen to this. So hopefully we can make that work. Uh, but in the meantime, if you guys have liked what uh, Dr. Duana Welch has had to say, and it's D-U-A-N-A, don't spell that wrong, uh, head over to Amazon. You can get her book, Love Factually, 10 Proven Steps from I Wish to I Do. Links will be on my site as well. You can find her on lovesciencemedia.com, and you can find out more about the book at lovefactually.co. And uh, maybe look her up on Twitter and ask her a couple questions, at Duana Welch. Duana, thank you so much for uh, this very invigorating and interesting conversation today. Oh, this is the most fun I have had on a podcast in a long time. You're a great interviewer, and uh, I hope that your audience will send you questions, and they can also send me questions so that next time we do this, we'll have some some new topics. Thank you so much. Yeah, hopefully they will, and uh, hopefully I'll talk to you soon. All right. Thank you. Thank you again to Duana for joining the show. I was not lying when I said I had at least two-thirds of my questions left that I didn't get to ask her. I had so much fun talking to her, and I, and I realized I didn't say a whole lot, but uh, don't take that as a negative. That's how you can always tell when I'm listening intently. Very interested by the stuff we got into. I'm always super intrigued by human psychology and, and relating things back to us as cavemen. I always find that so interesting. So I said at the top of the show, I have a super cool announcement for you guys. First, I just need to remind you, don't forget to check out Duana's blog and website at lovesciencemedia.com. Duana also says you can tweet her some questions if you'd like, at Duana Welch on Twitter. And do not forget to get her book, Love Factually, 10 Proven Steps from I Wish to I Do. It's on Amazon. If you guys are going to do any shopping on Amazon, you know what to do. Click on that banner over at IWantToKnowShow.com. Anyways, on to that announcement. Dwayne has already agreed to come back on the show. We have a date set. So please, as soon as you're done listening to this, think of some questions you have for Dwayne. Whether it's about you, about a friend, you know, you, we can get this anonymously. It's all good. She very much wants to answer your questions. She really liked the original set we had, so let's give her some more to answer. At Duana, D-U-A-N-A, Welch, W-E-L-C-H on Twitter. Or go to her website, lovesciencemedia.com. Make sure you guys keep spreading the word about the show, the I Want to Know podcast. You can find it on any podcast app that you use. In fact, I challenge you to find one that we're not on. And once you do, let me know so I can get us on there. You can find the show at IWantToKnowShow.com. Of course, on Facebook, Facebook.com slash IWantToKnow. On Twitter, at IWantToKnowShow. And like I said, the email address is IWantToKnowPod at gmail.com. Get those questions in for Duena. Also, let me know if you have any topics or guests you think I should uh, be bringing up in the very near future. In the meantime, I will talk to you guys very soon. And on that note, good night, everybody. <laughs>